This morning, we're going to head into 2 Peter 1. And um, before we do that, let's just pause and pray for just a second. Father, we thank you for a new morning. We thank you for a fresh look at your word. And Lord, I just ask this morning that you will protect um, all of the women and their children in this class. Lord, there are sicknesses that are going around, and we pray for all of those who are experiencing that right now, that you will bring healing to them and into their homes. And Lord, I just ask now that the words of my heart, the meditation there, that Lord, all of it will be an honor and a glory to you. And Father, we want to learn, so we're listening and we pray that you will teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is our newest family member. This is Tilly. And Tilly is 12 weeks old, and um, she's um, a lot of fun. Um, she is overly loving one moment, and then she is a rascal the next moment. And um, what Tilly needs in her life each day, I've decided, is she needs somebody who has more power and wisdom than she does. She needs an alpha leader. So I have decided to be that person. <laughs> I know that shocks you. She needs somebody who is going to feed her and give her a safe place to live. She has a lot to learn. She has a lot to learn about what are good habits and what are bad habits and which habits should only happen outside of the house <laughs> instead of inside the house. She um, certainly needs us for her basic needs, but she really needs to learn how to live a more godly life, <laughs> how to cooperate, um, what it means when she's told to stay or leave it, meaning stop chewing on my hand, right? Um, so I realize that we don't very often compare ourselves with puppies. But the more time I have spent with Tilly, the more I have begun to realize that we share some common characteristics. We all need someone in our lives who is more powerful and wiser than we are. We need somebody in our lives, we need the one in our life who we can have faith in because we know that he will help us grow that he will develop our faith and our character so that we will live in a more godly fashion. So today, I want to be sure as we go through this first chapter of 2 Peter that we notice that off the bat, right out of the gates, Peter describes that what starts all of this process of godly living, and remember in our slide that we've used each week, that we've talked about our identity and our hope, and we're talking about how we live and what happens when we influence others. Today is all about, really, all four of these things, but you might feel like we land especially in the how we live category. But Peter comes right from the start, and what he says is, your life comes out of a foundation of faith, that will enable you to live a godly life and know that you can stand firm. 
Now, we're going to talk through exactly how that works and what that means. Before we do that, just a couple of quick thoughts about the context of 2 Peter. Peter is writing again more than likely to the same group of people that he wrote 1 Peter to. So he's writing to both Jews and Gentiles that are in those churches. Um, they're, they're scattered. They're kind of spread out. And it's very possible that Peter is writing this letter from prison, that he has been arrested. Because Peter himself is living in Rome, and Peter is living in Rome where Nero is in full reign, and some years have passed, and Nero's persecution of Christians has gotten worse and worse and worse. And so you probably notice that Peter says in this chapter that he thinks his life is near the end, that the Lord has revealed to him. He actually says it that way, that the Lord has revealed to him that he doesn't have a lot longer to be around because, and more than likely, I mean, Peter is accepting the fact that as a believer and as one who has spoken out clearly of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will be taken into the Colosseum and martyred in some fashion. Now, if you knew the end of your life was coming and you knew that you had a relatively short time, I'm pretty sure that you would not be talking about inconsequential things, especially to those that you love the most and those that you felt that you had influence over. I don't think weather or home decor or new clothes or any of those kinds of things would be top of mind for you. I think what you would be expressing would be the most important things that you felt that those people that you love needed to know. So as we talk about this chapter, and as you continue to study the second and third chapters, I hope that you will keep that in mind, that Peter is writing at a point in time where he knows that every word he speaks to these people who he loves dearly is going to matter, and that this is his last opportunity to make all of this clear to them. And it's evidenced in this this book, um, this is one of those books in the New Testament that every time I read it, I feel like I read two or three verses and then I feel like, okay, wait, I need to go back and read that again. And the reason it feels that way is because Peter is packing monumental truth into every sentence, paragraph, verse that he writes. So the themes in this book are influenced by the fact that this is where Peter is. First of all, Peter wants to remind them of the significance of their faith and their standing before God. That's key. And in verses 1 and 2, he says, This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Given to you because of the fairness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every one of us who sit in this room, 
who know the Lord Jesus have that faith because it's been given to us. And so we had it at the start when we first came to know him. And ladies, it grows every day. And every day we are affirmed again that God is giving us more faith, more trust. And I, want, I don't want you to miss that as we go through this chapter. Now, the second thing that is a major theme in 2 Peter, we're going to talk about it a little bit today. You're going to study it a lot more in chapters 2 and 3, is that Peter is very concerned about false teaching in these churches. He's very concerned about compromise that could diminish the faith of those believers. So he's going to give them some warnings, but what he starts with today toward the end of chapter one is he starts with a testimony about why the prophecy and the word of God is true. And that's where we're going to land before we finish this this morning. So I want to call your attention to the first couple of significant words that Peter uses in this chapter. The first one is the word that he uses for faith. He carries this meaning and he says, this is not only, the word is, it's not only the idea that you had faith to believe, that you had faith to initially trust Jesus. But this word carries with it, the word is pistis in the Greek. It carries with us the idea that you have faith in the whole content of Christian beliefs, the whole content of what Jesus' life was about and what God intended. And then the word that immediately follows that, because he then says in verse 2, may God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And that word right there, knowledge, that is not just the idea of the way we learn things, facts, and we, we give intellectual assent. Yes, I understand that. I've learned that fact. That is not what this word means. This word means that we have an intimate, personal knowledge of God. This is heart knowledge. This is the kind of knowledge that deepens in our faith, that deepens in our lives through spiritual growth and development. So Peter develops this kind of flow in this first chapter. He talks about how having hearts of faith leads to more intimate knowledge, which develops into godly living, which creates stability. Don't worry about the fact that you didn't just get to write that down because we're headed right into that right now. So I've, I've decided today we're going to use a visual of an umbrella because what comes out in these verses, if you noticed in verse um, 3, I just read, by his divine power, no, I hadn't read this yet, by his divine power, don't miss those words, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. We have received all of this. How did we receive it? By coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory 
and excellence. So God's divine power is like the umbrella. It is the covering over all that God gives us. So what is the first thing that he gives us that we see in this chapter? Well, the first thing that he gives us is faith, solid faith. We've just read these first three verses where Peter says to the, to the readers of the letter, to the listeners, these, these first century believers, but he's also saying this to us. He says, you know what? We have all been equally called, equally saved. We all have the same gift of faith. And we are all equipped in the same way to live a Christian life. So for each of us, our individual foundation is the foundation of faith. It is the very thing that starts to open our hearts and our minds. And where does it come from? Does it come because we strive and we work hard? No. It comes because Jesus has given it to us through his righteous gift on the cross. And how does it grow? It grows through God's divine power. He tells us he gives us all we need for life and godliness. And through the intimate knowledge of Jesus, which grows and develops in us, we become more and more like him. And understand these words when it says that this is how we come to know his glory. There is no escaping the power of God in your conversion, your faith, the growth of your faith, and everything that he will teach you through his spirit about how to live your life. It is the umbrella over all of that. Now, in addition to faith, he tells us we're given knowledge. But remember, it's not general knowledge, it's intimate knowledge that begins with your initial salvation. It's almost like um, every believer comes with an introductory packet. Like God says, okay, now that you have committed your life to Jesus, here's what you need. You need my power. You need my precious and very great promises. You need all the equipment to become just like Jesus in your character, your habits, and your relationships. All of that is what God has gifted us. And in verse 4, he tells us why he's done that. So that we can become partakers of the divine nature. Now, most plants, vegetables, trees have something that's called a taproot. And the taproot is this long, thicker root that's growing straight down into the ground. It is the root from which all other roots grow off in different directions. And it is the root that gives primary nourishment to any kind of plant, no matter what it might be. Our faith and our personal knowledge of Jesus Christ is our taproot. It is what enables us to abandon ourselves to God, to know without a doubt that we are safe in giving him our all and trusting his strength, his will, and his wisdom. So that's the foundation that Peter is reminding them of to say, remember that your life is built on this. And then he starts to talk to them about 
the third one, which is godly living. So now remember, we start with faith. Our faith develops into intimate knowledge. And then God, through his spirit, teaches and shows us how to live godly lives. Now, when I read this list of characteristics in this first chapter, you know, you go down through there and it says, uh, starts with a really easy one, um, moral excellence. And then it goes on to knowledge, self-control, patient endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and it ends with love. And um, it feels a little overwhelming. I mean, the very first one feels a little overwhelming to me, moral excellence. Okay, so I went through to look at really what do each of these words mean? Because as we translate them, it's often true that we can translate them and things can feel different, heavier, um, maybe harder to internalize than the way they were originally intended. So I want to go through those seven things quickly just so you understand what Peter is actually saying about these things. So he says, these are the things that should mark your lives. The first one is moral excellence. This word refers to what are your internal motivations? What's the state of your heart and your conscience? Is it in the kind of shape that you would choose to do what is right? Then we go to knowledge. This is observation and personal experience that brings knowledge. So basically, you could ask yourself the question, what do my experiences with God or my observation of God in other people's lives teach me about him? Self-control. The idea here is that nothing should control us but Jesus himself. Our lives need to be balanced by the will and the power of God. Nothing should take over. Not work, children, power, drugs, alcohol, habits, a goal that's out in front of us. Nothing but Jesus. Perseverance means that we are clear-headed and stable, that we are firmly planted on our faith and we stick with it. Godliness is a word about attitude, actually. It's the word that means that we have the right attitude toward God and we have the heart of a servant. Brotherly kindness is the idea in the original language that we would treat others like members of the family, that we would make them at home and make room for their feelings and ideas and suggestions. And then finally, we build all the way up to the top of the ladder and we get to love. And this is the kind of love that is the most difficult to achieve. This is the love that seeks the highest good for others. This is the love that puts everybody else's needs ahead of our own. Now, now that you've heard the list and you understand pretty much what it means, aren't you glad that God gives you the strength and the power to achieve those things? Because there's not a single one of us in this room who could gain and do any of that well without him. 
So in verse 8, the other thing that Peter says about why God wants us to have those characteristics in our lives is so that we will be useful and fruitful as believers. Once again, he is reinforcing the fact that this is all about reflecting the nature of Jesus. This is not about us striving to accomplish something for our own praise. This is about how these qualities in our lives demonstrate the reality of our salvation to others. You know, throughout our lives, we make all different kinds of investments. We make financial investments, and even though some of them may be low risk, we don't have a guarantee that they're going to be profitable. Sometimes there is loss. We make investments in education. There are... um, The earning of degrees goes on all the time at every level, and every person who works toward that does it assuming that a certain kind of job will result at the end of it. And then that will tell them whether their years in the classroom were worthwhile or not worthwhile. Careers and work can do the very same thing in our lives. We can give 100%. We can work long hours, and sometimes the advancement comes, and sometimes it doesn't. None of that doubt is true about investing time and energy into spiritual growth. We never have to wonder if it's worth it, because God promises that what is put into our spiritual lives will be rewarded. In Hebrews, the sixth chapter, it says that God does not forget our efforts and love shown toward his name. It says that our assurance will be full in in eternity and that God rewards those who diligently seek him. So that's the essence of our faith, our knowledge. It's how we work in tandem with him to live godly lives. And Peter does say, make every effort to do this. In other words, what he's saying is, you do have some skin in the game here. You you need to be all in. You need to say, Lord, I know I need your help and your power to accomplish all of this, but I want you to know I'm in this with you. And the last thing that comes as a result in our lives is stability. Now, Peter um, recounts in the 16th through the 18th verses his personal experience in seeing the transfiguration of Christ. And I don't want us to hurry past that and miss it. Because what he's describing is the account that is in Matthew 17, where um, he and James and John are taken by Jesus to a high mountain. And there, Jesus is transfigured before them. The account in Matthew says that Jesus' face shone like the sun, that his clothes became as white as light, and that Moses and Elijah suddenly were there talking to him. And then a bright cloud overshadows all of them, And Peter and James and John hear the very voice of God saying what? 
this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And their response, they fell on their faces. And the next thing that happens is they eventually open their eyes and kind of look up. And only Jesus is there. And he's back in his earthly form. And his first words to them are, don't be afraid. Just like so many other places in scripture where the Lord Jesus himself or where an angel or a representative of God says, don't be afraid. But the reality is that the glory and the power of seeing Jesus in his true godly form, it is a sight so powerful and so magnificent that the only human response is to fall down. So as Peter decides to recount this, he you can imagine the passion and the expression that are in these words as he recites them to whoever is writing this letter down to him. Because what he's saying to them is, listen, this is not a myth or a tale. This is the reality of who the Lord Jesus is. And then he goes on to say this. He goes on to emphasize at the end of this chapter that all the words of prophecy are true. He's basically saying, listen, you know those scriptures that you have that came from the prophets? And if he were here today, he would be saying to you and me, you know this Bible that you have in front of you? This is the one and only absolutely reliable source of truth. It is God's sacred word. It stands firm as the standard for our faith and our actions. It never changes. It never goes out of date. And in the 20th verse, at the very beginning of it, this is in the NLT, but the ESV says something similar. Peter says, as he starts that verse, above all, above all, which basically means, you know, when a speaker says to you, if you're going to remember something, here's the thing to remember. Peter is basically saying, listen, get this. So above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. What Peter can attest to is that he has personally witnessed the detail of Old Testament prophecies come true in the life of Jesus Christ. So when he says these prophets wrote as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, he is in fact a witness to what has been recorded. I want you to walk out of here today knowing that this word is inerrant and authoritative. It was written by human authors, but only as they were led by the Holy Spirit to record what God intended and to keep them from error. God was directly involved in every page of this scripture. Now, one final word here. This is what the word of God 
our relationship with God should represent to us. It should be something that we can't get enough of. So when you studied this first chapter this week, if you just got a little sip of what Peter wrote about in this chapter, if you kind of had to hurry through your lesson or um, you were a little distracted at the time, I hope that you will go back and get a good deep guzzle between your, dis- your discussion this morning and your own reading because this is not a source of just information and opinions. This is the place of our foundation and stability. I want to close with one of my favorite umbrella stories. In the 1850s, a gentleman by the name of Charles Finney was a pastor and evangelist in north-central Ohio. And soon after this, he would become the president of Oberlin College. He lived in the town of Oberlin. And he was the pastor of a church there. And one Sunday, as he walked to that gathering, he had his umbrella over his arm. And a lot of the people in his church were chuckling at him. And the reason they were chuckling at him was because they were in the midst of a drought. The earth was parched, cracked, totally dried out. Their crops were devastated for the year. Their livestock was dying on their farms. But Charles Finney came that morning and he said, we're going to pray for rain. And so he led that group of people and he prayed and he prayed and he asked God for rain. And while he was praying off in the distance, there was only one little white cloud. But before that day was over, it became a thunderhead and rain poured down on north central Ohio. Now, I tell that story for this reason. God is our umbrella. He is the one whose divine power sustains us. He is the one who answers our prayers, increases our faith, teaches us how to live godly lives. There's just one thing we have to do, just like Charles Finney. We have to bring the umbrella. We got to say, Lord, I'm all in. I want to be more like you. I want to know your word is the foundation of my life. Let me pray for us before you go to your groups. Father, I thank you so much this morning for um, just the encouragement and the refreshment of knowing that although you call us to these things, that you are holding us up and giving us all the strength and equipping that we need the whole way through. And you never fail and you never change. And Lord, we love you for that. So we bless your name this morning, Father. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.